Hi, it's Lynn Galadner, and welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. I'm a writer and entrepreneur, and through decades of writing articles for magazines and newspapers and authoring books, I've learned that we succeed through inspiration from storytelling and deep and mutually beneficial relationships. This show began in 2018 after my father was diagnosed with a terminal illness, and I wanted a way to capture his stories and record his insights. It's grown since then to share stories of how people around the world make meaning from very ordinary pursuits. Now I focus on sharing the stories of writers, authors, and those in the world of publishing to learn how and why we create stories that help us make meaning from the mundane. I'm a former journalist and marketing entrepreneur, and I've been teaching writing for more than two decades. As a writing coach, I help authors build their brands and share their words. I've had eight books published already, and I just finished my second novel, so stay tuned for news about when and where you can read it. If you'd like to write with me, check out my offerings at lynngaladner.com, and you'll find more episodes of this podcast at makemeaning.org, as well as on every podcast platform you can think of. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for tuning in to the Make Meaning Podcast, where you'll find stories of courageous people daring to share their talent with the world. Now, on to the show. Hi, everyone. I have a great opportunity coming up in January 2023 called the Author Brand and Marketing Mastermind. This is a 12-week program for which I'm only going to accept 10 writers, and there are just a few spots left. It's a great opportunity to delve into your writer brand and also create a marketing plan that you feel confident to implement. Today, we all know that writers, no matter whether they're published with a big publishing house or self-publishing or somewhere in the middle, have to help out with the marketing of their works. If you want to sell books, if you want to get your writing published, if you really want to build a name for yourself as a writer, this is the course for you. I am now accepting applications for registration, and you can learn more at lynngaladner.com. Get your spot before it's sold out. As I prepared for my month-long writing sabbatical in the Scottish Highlands, I looked for writers groups to meet up with during my stay. People kept mentioning Marin Glover, as in, you must contact Marin Glover if you'd like to meet writers in Scotland, and so I did. She invited me to the Storyland sessions at Loch Inch, a wonderful open mic event in the heart of the Cairngorm Mountains, and then we met for coffee and a chat. Marin Glover is one of Scotland's treasures. She writes fiction, drama, poetry, and journalistic articles. Raised in South Asia, Marin attended university in Australia and has called Scotland home for nearly 30 years. Her plays and short stories have been broadcast on BBC Radio 4 and Radio Scotland and widely anthologized. Her first novel, A House Called Askeval, is set in an Indian hill station, and her second novel, Of Stone and Sky, is set in the Badenoch region of the Cairngorms National Park, where she now lives. This book won Book of the Year at the Bookmark Book Festival and was long listed for the Highland Book Prize. Marin's upcoming book is The Hidden Fires, a Cairngorms journey with Nan Shepherd, in which she responds to Shepherd's The Living Mountain, possibly one of the best examples of nature writing and one of my favorite books. This will be published with Polygon Books in March 2023. Today, I am honored to welcome Marin Glover to the Make Meaning Podcast. Well, Marin Glover, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Hi, Lynn. It's lovely to be with you here. 
I am really excited to chat with you again. You know, so much of my stay in Scotland was made special because of you. And not only did I love meeting you and other writers and performers, but Of Stone and Sky was one of the first books I read while there, and the story was gripping and beautiful. Oh, I'm just so glad to hear that. It was really special to to meet you and connect with you. And it was just great that a few people had pointed you to me and that we were able to have that time together. It was a great memory of my summer. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, I'm so honored. It was really very generous of you to spend time with me. And I'm so grateful. So I want you to know how how much it impacted me. And I'm I'm so grateful for our friendship now. Um, Yeah, likewise. There were just lots of lovely connections as we spoke. So that was great to pick up with those again. Yeah, yeah. And I'm so excited to introduce you to my audience of listeners here on the podcast. Um, You know, we focus a lot about writers and their writing journey and their publishing. So let's begin there. Tell me a little bit about your writing journey, you know, when you began and how your beautiful books took shape. Oh, well, thank you for the opportunity. Um, I think like a lot of your listeners, I'm one of those people that was writing since I was a child um, silly little poems about cats and that kind of thing. Um, and I just always enjoyed it. And I loved English at school. Uh, and I love theatre and anything kind of creative and expressive. Uh, I always just really enjoyed. But I think partly because I've always loved and still love lots of different kinds of things, it's probably taken me a while to find the focus for my writing. And because I love theatre, that was part of what I did at university. So my first major piece of writing was actually a stage play. Oh. Um, and, and interestingly, that had come out of a large project I was doing, working with elderly people living with dementia, mm. where I was capturing reminiscence and life story work with them. And this massive kind of body of stories built up, which I, you know, I gave these stories back to them and their families to capture their memories before they were lost. Yeah, it was a really amazing experience. And out of that, we published an anthology of some of these stories, obviously, with the permission of everyone involved. And they came to the launch and it was just a lovely experience. But I had this incredible body of stories out of that, which then became the first play that I wrote called The Long Way Home. which was a stage play um, for two actresses. Uh, And then um, the director of that play was actually an actor who did a lot of work on radio. And he got his producer from BBC Scotland Radio Drama to come in and watch the play. Mm -hmm. They both agreed it would really work well on radio. So it was adapted for radio. So that was the kind of entry for me into more professional writing, I I suppose, with a stage play that became a radio play. And then it was really after that that I kind of really found my feet more with fiction, um, with short stories, and then ultimately with the novels. Uh, And I had a dalliance with um, journalism for a while as well, because I did one of these long distance courses, you know, where they promise you'll get your fees back if you follow <laughs> their advice. <laughs> and the course started with articles, you know, so I dutifully did mm-hmm. them and sent them off for publication. And yeah, I did earn my fees back. But actually, part of that process, what was so helpful for me was the recognition I loved writing imaginatively. Uh-huh. Um, now, I still do elements of journalism and and my writing but it was the imaginative work whether that's in drama or prose or poetry that really captivates me 
So um, I never finished the course. I just took off and wrote some short stories. (laughs) And you're still doing articles. I see your posts on social media when you have an article published. Yes, that's right. It's interesting how it's kind of come back to that with articles. I suppose it's partly emerged with the internet where it's become a lot easier. When I first did this particular course I was talking about, it was still in the days where you had to type up your article and send it off to the tutor and then they would send back you know their feedback I'm that old (laughs) like email email existed at the time but this course hadn't quite caught up yet Uh and it was similar for um, submissions to a lot of magazines and things like that it was you know it was not always easy to get published and there were very there was very few blogs and online sites publishing work but of course it's changed so much now that so much is online and it can be relatively easy to get your work out there including your own blog which I have had I've had a couple of different blogs now Mm. so that actually has perhaps helped to bring me back into the world of article writing where some of the articles I write are for online places some of them are paid some of them are not Uh, and then the opportunity to write for things like the Guardian or their country diary and that is a uh, once every every other month that's paid work and that has quite a high reader readership really yeah yeah so, in fact yeah. it's the oldest continuous magazine uh, newspaper column in the world oh the my god diary yeah yeah wow, and uh, it's read by people all over the world uh-huh. um which was lovely because the end of the first lockdown year I think it was or even the second it all becomes a blur um <laughs> one of the comments under my piece uh it had been a winter piece one of the comments was you know you country diarists have just helped my spirit to be outdoors even when we've been locked down you know so it's been really a privilege to be able to write for that column that 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 means a lot to people around the world yeah yeah it seems to me um from reading a lot of your work that you get inspiration um from culture and place and i don't know if writing is sort of a way to make sense of it or to figure out more how you feel or where you fit in the the landscape of people and places. Um, Tell me a little bit about how you choose your subject matter. Yeah, sure. And uh, yeah, you've discerned that very well. Um, (laughs) Place and culture are hugely important in my writing. And I think a lot of that's to do with with who I am and and how I grew up. I was, uh, I'm an Australian by passport, but I was born in Kathmandu, the capital of Nepal. I grew up in Nepal and India and Pakistan till I was 18, went to university in Australia, on a round-the-world trip, met the love of my life, um, actually back in Kathmandu of all places. But um, he's a Yorkshireman, um, but he'd been living in Scotland since university. So uh, as our relationship developed, then Scotland became home for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, it was 30 years ago that exactly that I wow. came to Scotland the summer of 92 to to visit with him. And we went, you know, hill walking and exploring Scotland together, meeting his friends and his family and things like that. Mm-hmm. But together, we've been back to work in Nepal. I've been back to visit Nepal and India. Obviously, we go back to Australia regularly for family. We've been fortunate to be able to travel to other places as well. So I'm hugely influenced in my writing by a sense of of place and what that means about our identity, who we are, how that shapes us, how we belong, the ways in which those shifting territories of culture and and place and belief and belonging 
um, and the way those change so much over time as we grow older, as we keep moving, um, as different elements of our family and friends keep moving. So, yeah, that's always fascinated me. And uh, that is very much a kind of cornerstone of all my writing, whether it's fiction or nonfiction. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I want to tell you that, um, and I don't know if I've told you this, but when I was in Scotland and I came to um, the Storylands program, you said something about that, about place and culture. And it, I was there to write, as you know, and I was working on a memoir about my month in the Highlands. And that really became the focus. And so I was sort of on a quest of, okay, how does place impact us, influence us? Um, and and what? How do we define culture? And then, as an American, looking at that question and really wondering, you know, well, what is my culture? Because we're such a a mishmash of ancestry and culture. I mean, one could say you are too, but um, you know, I, I love how you are very place based, and so you can tell a story, you know, in one very rich and detailed place, and the landscape becomes a character and becomes an influence and. Um, so yeah. yeah, so you really sparked this exploration of, well, what is the culture of America? And I don't know that I have an answer, but it, it definitely oh. sent me down a rabbit hole. So um, thank you for that. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. And it's so interesting, too, because of the life I've lived, I've known a lot of Americans. Uh -huh. But like you, all the Americans I have known well are Americans that have traveled outside of America. Yeah. And that changes people. Absolutely. And so a lot of the stereotypes about Americans don't apply to the ones that I know <laughs> because they've had broader experience and broader vision. Now, I have I have been to the U.S. on a couple of occasions. So, of course, yeah. I have met Americans that have never been out of the country. But, yeah, you're right. It's an impossible thing to pin down, isn't it? And what, what yeah. makes America in so many ways is all of the different influences over time, all of the different cultures that have come together and continue to shape one another. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the same would be true, definitely, of white Australians, uh, the, the white Australian heritage that I have. And, you know, Scotland, that it's been a real coming together, lots of different cultures and, and influences over time. And some of my ancestral heritage is Scottish. Ah. So that's an interesting drawing of a, a circle to, to come back Absolutely. Um, to discover more of those links. It's funny too, yeah. and you said um, you said hill walking, which is a Scottish term that I really take umbrage with because I am quite a hiker. But you know, quote unquote, hill walking in Scotland is really arduous. It's very <laughs> it's, it's very steep, and I'm like, what are you talking about hills? This is not mere walking. So um, we did actually a hike in the Cairngorms, my daughter, um, oh, when great. she was there, and I can't remember which peak. I really wanted to summit the peak, and I. I love hiking, but I have a terrible fear of heights. And so um, I'm much better in forested hikes because I don't really see how high I am. And yeah. so we emerged from the forest and we were quite high up and we didn't have far to go to the summit. And I just, I couldn't keep going. I just had to turn um, back. So no. um, it was definitely not a hill for me. <laughs> so. no. Well, it's a really interesting question. It can be slightly contentious on Twitter, of course, whether you really? call something a hill or a mountain. Yeah. And it's really funny because People will talk about the mountains of Scotland, the yeah. Cairngorm Mountains, or, yeah. or, or the, the, the mountains on Sky, and things like that. Yeah. And then some people say these are not mountains; these are hills. Um, <laughs> and as you say, people talk about hill walking, or they talk about mountaineering. Uh, when I've asked for the difference, some people have said, "Well, mountaineering is where you need some kind of safety equipment, like ropes or whatever." 
Okay. Um, that means it's not just hill walking. But I mean, I, I've been walking in, in the Himalayas without safety ropes, and it's definitely not hill walking. You know, that is <laughs> yeah. definitely mountains. Um, but yeah, different, different, there's different language that people use because in, in, in America, you talk about trekking. Yeah. And in Australia, we talk about bushwalking. And I think the New Zealanders talk about tramping, but yeah. a lot of it's very similar, similar activity. And it, it is interesting with the mountains in Scotland because they're not very high. So for me, having come from the Himals, you know, the idea of them being mountains seemed preposterous initially. But as you say, they can be quite hard work. Yeah. And and particularly in the Cairngorms, the Cairngorms is often described as a small island of the Arctic in the middle oh, of Scotland. Okay. Because the conditions that you get up the top are like Arctic tundra. You get that weather, you get that landscape, you get that wildlife and uh, vegetation. Yeah. And it, it's extreme. And you can get winds of up to 170 miles per hour up there with gusts that will knock yeah. people over. Yeah. It's extremely dangerous winter conditions. And even some of the summer conditions can be extremely dangerous because of the way mist can completely blank you out. And there are steep cliffs. Yeah. So I think some people make the opposite mistake to you and they think they're just hills and might wander up in their sandals you know uh, and it's really not safe even in summer to do that people yeah. have to be aware that they are you know in some senses quite wild mountains and they change and they're challenging yeah. um, so that's been a really interesting learning journey for me to embrace a very different kind of mountain range which at one time was probably as high as the Himalayas but yeah. they're just so so old yeah, it was wonderful to be there though. But, um, and I wish, I wish I had, I wanted to get to the Bothy and I just didn't. Oh. And so I'm oh. like, well, maybe we just have to accept what is. And we went yeah. two thirds of the way up. So that's something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then we turned back. But, um, totally. And you'll have to come back, obviously. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. There's, there's no the question there. Calling. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about your publishing experiences. I'd love to sure. hear how you found a publisher for a house called Askeval and then the journey of publishing for Of Stone and Sky. Sure. Thanks for asking. So a house called Askeval was written over very many years. I, I, I work quite slowly. I'm the opposite of your very productive author. <laughs> the tortoise <laughs> of the publishing world, I'm afraid. Um, so it, it had gone through lots of rewrites and things like that. But the irony was I, I had this amazing experience that writers might dream of, which through that process, I had two different agents contact me. Huh. Now, it's normally the reverse. You're trying to get agents to be interested. One of the agents had seen a short story that I'd written and she would got in touch and interested. And was I working on a novel? I said, yes, as it happens, I am. Uh, the other agent had actually was actually working for a publisher who had rejected the, the novel Oh. And she got in touch with me because she actually worked for them selling on rights. Oh. And she said, I think they made a mistake. Mm. Uh, and I actually do. I'm starting to do some work as an agent, a direct agent, not just selling on rights. And I'm, okay. you know, can we talk? Mm -hmm. So I was in conversation with both of these. And it ended up being that second one that um, took me on. Um, and she worked really hard to try and place that book, um, but without success. Oh. So that obviously, as everybody listening will know, is a really devastating experience. Yeah. And it's that roller coaster because you get that real excitement of agents contacting you and then one deciding it's not for her, the other taking it on. And then you all, you think it's made, you know, you're cracking open the champagne. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, at 18 months later, 
there's still been no publisher that's taken it on. Yeah. Um, so at that point, I basically just said to her, look, thank you for all of your hard work, but I don't think there's much more we can do for each other. Because I had, you know, I had sort of perhaps rewritten a few things in response to feedback at that point. And yeah. when we got the last rejection from a publisher that I thought might take it on, I just said, look, I think I just need to kind of take it back and rethink here. And, you know, um, so she she said, fine, you know, but so she'd invested all that work and she'd not earned a penny from it. Yeah, That's yeah. deal with agents. And I, at that point, I really was at rock bottom. I just... I really felt like everything had fallen apart. And, mm. you know, I had spent years working on this project. I'd poured so much into it. And there's that awful feeling that you've wasted everybody's time. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I'm a qualified secondary school teacher. I could have been doing something useful and helpful for other people. I could have been earning something for my family. Yeah. And yeah. was I just completely deluded? Uh, and there's this awful, awful feeling yeah and I woke up I think at three o'clock in the morning just completely crushed by this sense of failure but also this sense of being lost you know interesting Mm -hmm. talking about mountains the image that came from me perhaps being someone that's always loved mountains was of that experience when you're walking in mountains and you think you're getting to the summit and you get there and it's not the summit the summit's (laughs) still ahead it's a false peak and then you keep going but it's still not the summit and then you keep going and this feeling that I had been following this summit deep into a mountain range and actually I was now completely lost Mm. and alone and I didn't know where that summit was and I maybe it didn't even exist yeah maybe I I was mad you know the whole thing and I I was just utterly devastated and and my poor husband got up that day to work to find that I had just been crying you know and I was you know and it was awful for him to have to to leave me to go to work knowing I was in such a bad place yeah but, you know, I, I I wrote in my spiritual journal about that experience and gave it back to God in prayer. And that day, 12 different things happened, which were a mark of blessing, huh. of encouragement. Like one or two of them, I thought Alistair had contacted my friends to say, Maren's in a really bad place. Would you just come alongside her? But he hadn't. And okay. but they, they had just come alongside me. Uh-huh. There was all these gestures of love my mom in Australia had contacted to say she had just felt a real call to pray for me you know and it was this extraordinary sense of you know because I believe in the divine this extraordinary sense of the divine arms just coming around me through all these lovely friends and family and signs and wonders I mean it wasn't a publishing deal but it was this encouragement that you're not lost you're not alone yeah it will come to pass okay um, and, you know, so then I thought, right, I've just got to try and get this out there myself. Um, I saw something on social media about a, a magazine looking for submissions. I followed through, discovered the magazine was brought out by a new Scottish publisher. Oh. Uh, I looked on their website. They were open for unagented uh, submissions. Okay. So I submitted to them and really just a few weeks later got a response that they really liked my novel and they wanted to take it forward you oh, know so that's, that's the so point great. that it collapse in tears isn't it yeah you know? oh my wow. gosh it has come to pass you know so yeah so then it was it was a, an amazing experience and they were at the time a really kind of up-and-coming Scottish publisher 
they um, brought my book out the following year. Um, they did it. They did a great job with it. And then the year after that, they were Scottish Publisher of the Year in the, wow. the sort of Saltire Book Awards. It was all really happening. Uh-huh. Um, and then the the about a year and a half later, they went down the tubes. They just went oh. bust. Oh, God. Yeah, oh, I know. It, it was absolutely devastating for everybody involved. But it's un, not an uncommon story for small independent publishers. It's a really tough, tough world, and yeah. they just didn't make it. Yeah. Um. So that was kind of devastating because I had another novel started and <laughs> underway, and I didn't have a publisher at that point. Um. But interestingly, it, be, it became an opportunity in its own way because by then there's a lot of work had been done around independent publishing. Yeah, And I was able to tap into a lot of networks and resources in order to, to then just republish that book myself oh, and keep it out there, uh, both okay. initially online and then you know, subsequently print editions and things as well. Okay. So that's been a really positive experience. Um, and uh, yeah, I have a lot of respect for a lot of people in the, in the independent publishing world. They're extremely smart and entrepreneurial and very, very professional in how they go about it. So it's been great to learn from them. Definitely. Yeah. Before we go on to Of Stone and Sky, I just want to stop there for a minute because, you know, we talked about this a little bit, but when both of us were coming up in in our careers, self-publishing was not respected. And it's definitely mm-hmm. made a change over the past decades um, sure. to where now it's very professional. It's a legitimate way to publish. And sometimes sure. it's actually preferred because traditional publishing requires so much hoop jumping and delay. Mm -hmm. And it's about seeking approval and validation from others where maybe there's nothing wrong with your book. Maybe it just isn't resonating with a particular person at that particular time. And, you know, I I go through this all the time, especially with the novel that I've just completed, and I'm about to query agents. Um, But part of me really resists because Mm -hmm. I'm very well published, uh, all by independent publishers, actually. And I sort of feel like, you know, it's all about expectations. And it's Mm. sort of like we're playing to a specific standard that may not be a global standard. It's a, it's sort of expected in the, you know, Western white majority privileged world that this is Mm. the way we publish. This is Mm. the, the format or the language or the, the sort of story structure even. And Mm. I wonder what your thoughts are, especially growing up as you did in so many different cultures you know, I understand that with traditional publishing, there's so much built into it that can help to bring your book to market, to um, to to build more of an audience and a readership, which is such a wonderful benefit. But you do have to jump through all those hoops to get there. So mm. what are your thoughts about, you know, which way to go in this day and age? Yeah, sure. It's a really big question and a really important one for, for writers to to think through and to work through. And there's definitely pros and cons, and there's no one size fits all for any one author or for any one book. And and what we increasingly find is authors that are hybrid, that there's yeah. certain projects that that really um, need a publisher for a whole range of different reasons, and that works better for for the author. Yeah. But then they may well have other projects that they want to do themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. And or a lot of the time you've got books were traditionally published, but they reach a point where the publisher is no longer going to bring out another print run and the author can get back the rights and do more with it. Yeah. Um, because the, at the bottom line for the publisher, they are a business. Yeah. So they have to bank on every title they take on. They have to work out are they going to sell enough copies for the investment they put in. And they right. put in a lot of investment. They employ a lot of people. Right. There's a lot of work and a lot of skills in, involved in what they do, and they have to pay for that. 
Um, and publishers often passionately love a book, but they their marketing team or their sales team will just say, we can't shift enough copies of this yeah. um, to, to make it work. And some publishers are in the position that they can, they they make enough money on some of their commercial titles that they can afford to bring out passion projects. Yeah. Books they love, which may not earn back. Yeah. Um, but a lot of publishers, particularly small independent publishers, don't necessarily have that resource. Yeah. And in at the end of the day, nobody knows really what is going to fly or not. Right. Right. You know, everybody's taking a punt, taking a risk, particularly on new authors or or an author taking a new tack. Yeah. So you have to be realistic. And I know it's devastating when you're in the position of getting the rejections. I've been there. It is devastating because you're really wondering, is it is it me? Is it the book? Is it my writing? All kinds of things. And yeah. I needed to develop that book. It wasn't ready when I first sent it out. Ah, and okay. It would have been a mistake for me to try and self-publish that book when I thought it was finished. Okay. So for me, I'm glad I didn't take that route at the time. Okay. I need I needed for that book the kind of testing, the going through the fire of all those rejections, all those rewrites, um, and the work with a publisher and the publisher's editor to actually get it to the point that it was ready. So that is something to always bear in mind if you're considering self-publishing. Yeah. Um, and I think one thing you must never skimp on is is editing. You know, so yeah. make sure if you're going to self-publish, you still pay a professional editor who really pushes you hard, doesn't just tell you what you want to hear. Yeah. But I think um, the other thing that's changed a lot is the whole thing of personal platform online. So if authors have already got a really good, strong following online and whatever your chosen platforms are, then you may well have a ready-made audience. Mm -hmm. If your book is the kind of thing that your existing audience will love, then that, that gives you a leg up. You know, whereas I guess in the days when I first brought my book out, I think Facebook was around, but I probably wasn't that active on it or whatever. So, you know, it was a lot harder to launch something yourself without all of the ways in which an author can independently build their platform now. So that's another factor to bear in mind is is your your audience, your platform and how you intend to reach them, because that's what a publisher is looking for. And publishers are often looking for the same thing in authors. Does this author have a platform? that will help to sell the book. So there is the reality of how you're going to sell it. But I think deeper and more important to me, particularly because what I write is literary fiction. So for me, it's all about trying to write something that is meaningful, that is beautiful, that says not only things that I feel are important, but says them in the best possible way. and And in language that is original and explores ideas in ways that are significant. So For me, then, it's really important that I take the time and that there is the professional input to to craft that work as well as it can be. Whereas I think there are other kinds of fiction that the readership, the market is not demanding that same kind of book. They're wanting a fast read, a fun read. There's absolutely nothing wrong with those books. They're great. We all love that kind of lighthearted entertainment or the the thriller or whatever it is. And there's still craft and skill involved, absolutely. But they don't necessarily require the same amount of time and the same amount of rewriting and reworking. So I guess that's the other thing that writers need to take into consideration is what, what kind of book are you writing and what are the demands of that form of literature? 
um, yeah. when you're when you're deciding what route to take. Now yeah. there are self-published writers in literary fiction as well, um, but I think again they they they're not the people churning them out once a month or even maybe once a year. Right. You know, it takes longer, and again they're investing in the editing. Points. So a lot of things to consider. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, so you know, I have uh, worked with the developmental editor on the novel, and she does push me, and so yes. <laughs> which is great. But I I'm trying the traditional route first, just because I want to see if I can do it. So I'll yeah. keep you posted. And you may well find you get some useful feedback in that process as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, so well, all the best with that journey, Lynn. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Fingers and toes crossed, hoping that it yeah. goes really well. So it can be hard. Yeah. Yes. Um, so tell me then about the journey to publishing of Stone and Sky. Yeah, sure. So because my first publisher had gone bust, I didn't have <laughs> you know, anything lined up for that one. I was talking to a friend at Highland Lit. I think you got along to Highland Lit. I did. They were fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. A lovely supportive community of people interested in writing and literature that meets in Inverness once a month. Yeah. And um, I was talking to a friend there who's Helen Sedgwick, who's a wonderful published author, Uh who's been great at breaking the rules actually because she publishes in different genres so her first couple of books were literary fiction and then she's written three crime novels and she's now working on science fiction so just determined to write what she passionately wants to write that's so great (laughs) Uh, I love that that. but um, she was with a a wonderful agent called Catherine Summerhays and uh, as I was talking to her about the situation I was in and the collapse of my publisher and so on and so forth, which she knew a lot about because she'd been closely associated with other people involved and uh-huh. talking about her agent and how things had worked there. And she kindly offered to make an email introduction to this agent, which obviously held no guarantees, but it was yeah. just a sort of, you know, yeah, I think you, you might be happy to read Marin's work kind of thing. Yeah. So that was extremely gracious of her. And and Catherine um, said, yep, sure, send it on over. Here's my Here's my email. And uh, so I did. I sent the manuscript when it was ready. I hadn't heard anything for a bit. I had put the book into a tweet pitch thing that was happening in Scotland, um, uh-huh. which is part of an ex- the Expo North um, Creative Industries Festival that happens every January. They do this tweet pitch thing on a certain day. Okay. So I thought, oh, well, I'll just put it in because I haven't heard back from the agent. So I tweeted about it and I was getting a, I had about half a dozen different responses from agents and publishers to it. Mm-hmm. So I got back to Catherine and said, um, I don't know if you've had time to have a look. I have got other interest. Um, were you still wanting to to go forward with it or not? And, yeah. and she said, um, well, actually, it does need more work. <laughs> so that's <laughs> kind of heart sink. So at that point, I did actually then pay for professional editing because mm-hmm. I just felt I couldn't see the wood for the trees. You know, I had yeah. sent it off to a few different people who you know, beta readers, people had given me feedback, all that kind of thing, all of which had been helpful. But I thought, okay, I need a really good professional edit here. And yeah. um, and I'd asked for her recommendations, which she had given me, but said, you know, there's still, you know, just be aware, there's no guarantee that I'll take it on, even if you do this, yeah. which is fair yeah. enough. Um, so I did, I paid for a professional edit, sent it back. And um, yeah, with, almost immediately, she she took it on. Oh, great. Um, so yeah, that, that was hugely exciting. She was a well much sought after agent she's a great agent and I think a year later she won agent of the year at the, oh. the British um, book awards so so that was uh really exciting yeah. um so I think she's probably utterly inundated with uh 
with manuscripts now. So I felt uh, lucky to, to get in what I did. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And so then who, which publisher took on of Stone and Sky? Yeah, so that's a, a, an interesting story as well, because again, there was this real excitement that I got this agent and she's a really great agent, really influential. Um, but, you know, the book was still getting knocked back when she was oh. sending it out. Okay. Uh, even knock back on no answers, you know, and I thought it was only authors that got no answers, but huh. even influential agents can really? get no answers from publishers sometimes. Okay. Um, so, uh, but then what had happened was the following year, um, 2019, I was writer in residence for the Kengorms National Park. And mm-hmm. so at the start of the year, I'd written an article for Northwards Now, um, mm-hmm. a literary newspaper published in Scotland mm-hmm. about the residency and what I was looking to do. And I mentioned in this article that I had this, this novel um, looking yeah. for a publisher. So um, an editor uh, from my current publisher, Polygon, um, wrote to say, I'm really keen to see this novel. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, let me connect you with my agent. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, th- then, you know, she sent it and he was reading it. Um, so then ultimately um, that ended up being the publisher who took it on. And, and that that person, Edward, was my was my editor and and still is so so that worked out really well so although actually it didn't end up being initiated by the agent it was still negotiated through her and she did still negotiate for me a much better deal than I could have got otherwise so it's still been really powerful to have to have that agent back in me through that process yeah nice nice and so I understand that you're putting the finishing touches on a new book would you mm. care to tell me a little bit about that project? Yeah, sure. So that in, that came out about in the same year that I was writer in residence for the Kengorms National Park. And I got a message. Um, I hadn't heard back at that point about the novel and whether Polygon wanted to take it on. But I got a message from another a commissioning editor, also at Polygon, with a nonfiction proposal. And I said, um, do you know that I've actually got a novel in process <laughs> with you guys? Uh-huh. So at that point, they started kind of joining dots a bit more. But um, the nonfiction proposal was to write a contemporary response to a book called The Living Mountain by Nan Shepherd. Which it's I a favorite of mine. I love that yeah. book. Yes. Yeah. Had you read it before you came to Scotland? or did you? Just I did. Yeah, a while back, I had um, taken a nature writing course, and they recommended um, that book as sort of the 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 book, you know, that's the one that you should be looking at for nature writing. And so I bought it, and I read about half of it. And then when I was when I knew I was coming to Scotland, I said, hold on, don't finish it now, read the rest of it when you're in Scotland, because I felt oh, like it would have better resonance. But um, maybe tell our listeners a little bit about Nan Shepherd and the Living Mountain. Yeah, gladly. Yeah, so Nan Shepherd was a, a modernist writer who was born and brought up in Aberdeenshire. So she was a contemporary of Virginia Woolf. And at the time when she published her novels, late 20s, early 30s, she was likened to Virginia Woolf. She was well respected at the time. Mm-hmm. She was part of what was called the uh, Scottish Literary Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Um, she was reviewed in you know, the, the US, read over there as well. Um, and then she published some poetry some years later, a collection of poetry called In the Cairngorms. Mm-hmm. And so most of us, not most, quite a few of the poems are about the Cairngorms, but there's uh, other su- subjects as well. Mm-hmm. And then for a long, long time, she didn't really publish anything else apart from the occasional essay in a, in a journal somewhere. But in the latter years of the Second World War, she wrote about the Cairngorm Mountains. Um, now, she'd always loved hill walking, as they call it here. And she loved the Cairngorms since she was a young woman. Mm -hmm. And 
she wrote this book about them uh, during the latter years of the Second World War. After the war, she sent one letter of query to one publisher. And when they declined to read the manuscript, she put it in a bottom drawer and Mm -hmm. left it for 30 years. Yeah. And then um, when she was interviewed by a journalist and she was probably in her, she might have been 80 or something at the time. I can't remember. But this journalist's article said, writer of genius gives up. That was the Mm. headline. Mm. And we don't know, but maybe that goaded her into thinking, I haven't given up. (laughs) And uh, but anyway, it was soon after that she got the manuscript um, out of the drawer. This was uh, 1977, Mm -hmm. decided uh, as she wrote in her foreword to it Mm -hmm. um, all these 30 years later that that, that the account of her traffic with a mountain was as valid uh, as it had been then. Yeah, um, she would just go ahead and she self-published it. I think a lot yeah. of people don't realize that now because, as you say, it's such a celebrated book on nature writing. Yeah, uh, and in fact, it's been likened. You know, it's been described as the you know the, the best book on yeah. nature writing in Britain. It's been published in Britain, but uh, she didn't bother at that point with more publishers and things like that. I mean, I think she was already eighty-four years old. Yeah, and. Uh, I just wonder if she thought she just didn't have the time and yeah, she didn't yeah. care. She just wanted this book out there. Who knows? We yes. don't know what her thinking was. Right. But uh, so she paid for 3,000 copies through Aberdeen University Press, which at the time were just a press. They weren't a, they weren't a publisher. Yeah. She was hopeless at marketing. <laughs> so I think she gave away quite a few copies, maybe sold a handful. <clears throat> but there were boxes and boxes of them left when she died four years later. Mm-hmm. So um, and then. Um, it just gradually gathered ground. And obviously in the literature departments in Scottish universities and, and probably other universities, you know, she was recognized for her writing. You know, mm-hmm. she would appear in literary anthologies. There were essays written about her and so forth. Um, but it really wasn't until I would say Robert McFarlane, who's a very eminent and, and well-recognized writer in the UK, in particularly around landscape and nature and place, when he um, quoted from her work in his own writing and began to champion the Living Mountain in particular, mm-hmm. it wasn't till then that it really started to gain ground. And that was, you know, perhaps just over 10 years ago, I think. Yeah. Really. Um, yeah. And yeah. then it's just gone, got bigger and bigger and bigger from there. He did a BBC Two television programme, Walking in the Mountains and Talking About Her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... She's become more and more celebrated. There's now an Anne Shepherd Literary Prize mm-hmm. put out by Canongate, Gates, who are the publisher who who published her work, mm-hmm. um, her, her novels and and that and that book certainly. So yeah, she's just gained an eminence, um, rightly so. Um, yeah, yeah. This underrecognized book is finally getting the recognition it deserves. So so what Polygon had approached me to do was to write a contemporary response to that book in particular. Wow, and that's a very big ask. That's I know, yeah, I yeah. know, and it's not something that I would have had the audacity to <laughs> propose myself. Right. It would never have entered my head. Yes. So it was a very daunting ask, and I guess I then had to go away and think about it and put together a proposal. But the vision really was for a woman, a contemporary woman who is living, working, walking, writing in the Cairngorms today. Mm-hmm. reflecting back on her book, her experience as a, as a woman writing in her time, mm-hmm. what has changed, what has changed about the mountains mm-hmm. uh, and our experience of them. 
and also what is different in our journeys to the Cairngorms because she grew up 50 miles away from them mm-hmm. and she spent her entire life in the same bedroom mm-hmm. apart from the first three months and the latter few months in a nursing mm-hmm. home mm-hmm. Uh, whereas I you know as I said I just traveled so many times I I lived in I moved over 60 times in the first yeah. 18 years of my life wow and I grew up in the Himals, these, these incredible, highest, iconic yeah. mountains of the world. Yeah. So our backgrounds and those senses were so very, very different. Uh, and so to contrast our journeys to this one really ancient mountain range, and how do these two quite different women meet and have a conversation, in a sense, yeah. in the Cairngorms? She became, for me, this kind of invisible companion in that walking and in that dwelling because as you will know from having read it she would tell you not to worry about the fact you didn't make it to that summit you know (laughs) that she herself got over what she called the lust for the summit Uh and increasingly began to learn the depths the recesses the joys of going slowly of taking the unpath as she called it of um, focusing on the little things, you know, the tiniest flowers, you know, the flake of snow, the that note of a bird song. And so it is this wonderful, her book is this wonderful guide, not so much, not just about a place, but about a way of being in a place. Yeah. And ultimately about a way of being. And that is the title of the last chapter, as you know, is being. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, it's been described accurately. Well, it's famously difficult to classify, but it's yeah. partly been described as a work of philosophy because that's what she increasingly explores through the writing yeah. and how the walking is the exploration of mm-hmm. the philosophical journey. Yeah. She doesn't ever talk about philosophy overtly. Yeah. But what I found so fascinating in kind of contending with her and her ideas in that space was to reflect on experiences I'd had of growing up amongst you know major world religions Mm -hmm. and not just the South Asian religions that were all around me um, at the Christian faith that was part of my own heritage but also in the international school that I was in there all these other religions that were represented as well so in a sense I'd come come across them all by the time I was 18. I found it really interesting personally to reflect on the philosophical journey and the idea of pilgrimage, because in her last paragraph, she likens the walk uh, to pilgrimage. Mm. Um, And so I reflect on that throughout my book, you know, what kind of pilgrimage it might be, what pilgrimage might mean for people of different faiths or of no faith, Mm -hmm. because she reflects on Buddhist pilgrimage, but she does not call herself Buddhist. She never claims that for herself. And she had read widely around different philosophical ideas, particularly Eastern philosophies. She doesn't ever really kind of nail in that book what she herself thinks. She doesn't nail it to a particular faith or religion or philosophy. Mm. Um, so it's really fascinating because she leaves a lot of space for us to explore those ideas, those experiences, and very much in the physical because that's a big part of her whole her, her whole view. I was going to say argument, but she doesn't really argue. But her whole position is that you explore the idea, you explore meaning, you explore the self through the body, Mm. through the mountain, through becoming one 
with the mountain because it's not you exploring it, it's you entering it. Mm. Uh, and she says, at last, I have been in. Yeah. It was an enormous honor to go in, yeah. you know, to follow her into that place and, and that thinking and that dwelling. So, yeah, it was a real amazing experience to write. Um, and it's it's on its way now. <laughs> so when can we expect it? First of March, 2023. And I just got sent cover designs this week. So ah, it's, it's all happening. Yeah. <laughs> that is so exciting. Well, we'll put all kinds of links in the show notes so that our listeners can can pre-order copies when this episode airs and um, oh, also buy Nan Shepard's book is, at the same time. So yeah, totally. So, um, well, you know what, it's been so lovely chatting with you. And before we finish our conversation, I just wonder what advice you might offer aspiring writers who are listening. You've had such a varied career and it, and it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, that you're just sort of letting your writing evolve and take you to the next place. And it's not a predestined um, path. It's just sort of, this is the story I need to tell right now and I'm going to immerse in it and then I'm, I'll move on to the next story. So what what advice might you offer aspiring writers? Yeah, well, thank you. I The thing that I have to acknowledge right away um, and perhaps the most important advice is marry someone who can afford to pay the bills. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yes. because you're right. I have <laughs> explored different ideas, but I've had the luxury to do that. Yeah. I've had the privilege of a of a husband uh, who's a, a GP or a family doctor, as you call it over there, yeah. and who's just been enormously supportive of my writing um, personally and practically. I'm really reluctant to kind of give advice in that sense because I know I've just been very lucky to be able to, in, in a sense, indulge the things that I have wanted to do. And I know for a lot of people, they have to find a way of making their writing pay the bills. I think I might take issue with that because, you know, okay. I'm reflecting on what you said earlier about how um, you wrote the article in Northwoods Now and you mentioned um, what you were going to be doing in the Cairngorms and then somebody reached out to you and that's how your sure. novel was published. Now, I don't know if the Northwoods Now article was a paid article or not, but you did say in the beginning yes, of the interview, yeah. was it? Yeah. <laughs> Okay. But um but you but I know that you'll write some articles not for that you don't get paid for and I do the same thing. There are times that an essay of mine will appear and and I'm not paid for it. I obviously prefer to be paid for my writing. I think all writing should be paid for, but but yeah. instead of having that very closed perspective, being open the way you are has brought you incredible opportunities and one could say, well, I'm not going to do this if I won't be paid, but then where would you be if you didn't do that? And so there are some incredible lessons in, in all that you've done and choices that you've made too. Yes, I, I you're right. And I suppose it's it's art and it's impossible to be calculated about it. It's impossible to, to sort of say, right, I'm going to write this book and it's going to earn this much money. And it's going to sell these many copies and so on and so forth. And I, I, I just think it's very difficult for anyone to approach a creative work in that way I know some people are infinitely more commercial about it than I am and I, and I guess increasingly I have been I, I suppose I've I've made my contribution financially with other things like supply teaching and yeah. working in the library which I've loved and then lots and lots of projects and events like the Storyland sessions that you came along to yeah. um, which I love I love all the things that I get to do in the community and leading teaching writing workshops and um, all those kinds of things, um, because I just really love the connecting with people. I, I could never be the kind of writer that just 
shuts myself away for hours on end and does nothing but but write books I would wither so I suppose a, a part of what's made it financially you know, viable is that I, I I kind of earn in other ways because the books don't earn particularly well so far so far yes. you know all this yes. can change Lynn, <laughs> really hope. Um, yes. but um, in terms of advice I suppose what has been important for me and the lessons that I, I have needed to learn over and over again is about not pinning hopes or a sense of self on external markers of success mm-hmm. because those just kept falling and crumbling yeah. around me. <laughs> um, and But I knew somehow I could not, would not give up because when I kept thinking, well, maybe I just shouldn't write anymore because this isn't, I'm not getting published or I'm not earning anything and then I, I would think, but I can't not write. Yeah. I, I wouldn't stop. I write every day in some form or another. It was about coming to terms with what shape that writing would take. And I suppose the recognition that I would always write, but I always wanted a reader. I, mm-hmm. I didn't, some of my writing is just for myself. It's just personal or it's prayer or whatever. But then there's always the writing that I, it wants to reach out. It wants yeah. to be found. It wants a listener or a reader. Yeah. So for me, the focus has become increasingly, rather than looking at those external markers of success, to focus the creativity on the things that matter, mm-hmm. which for me are the, the going deeper, the exploring your humanity, mm-hmm. the search for meaning and connection, reaching out the far reaches of your imagination and your ideas, and ultimately the joy of making art and sharing that with others, yeah. just as I enjoy receiving the art that others extend to me and and it becomes a mutual art making you know so for me it's being anchored time and again coming back on the center on center coming back to what really matters which is what we're here for is as people to bring beauty to bring life to bring joy to live in love yeah And, and that's that's the heart of my creativity Oh, well, you're bringing tears to my eyes. And it's just, it's just so beautiful. I, I've loved chatting with you. And, and I will say that even before I met you, when I was looking around for writers to connect with in Scotland, when I knew I would be taking a sabbatical there, um, everybody kept saying, well, you need to reach out to Marin Glover. Well, you need to find Marin Glover. <laughs> and I thought, who is this one person that everybody in the Highlands says I need to connect with? And Boy, am I glad that they did. And um, it's just, you really carved out a niche in place and in voice and in helping other artists come to the fore and um, keep doing what you're doing. It's it's really working. So thank you um, for taking your time with me here on the Make Meaning podcast. Oh, uh, well, thank you, Lynn. It feels like a really great place to to be with you. And uh, it was such a privilege to meet you. And it just opened up lots of really interesting connections and thoughts for me and I'm just excited for what that Scotland journey will bring out for you and uh, I think what you're doing here on the on the Making Meaning podcast is so important so bless you in that thank you and uh, and bless your listeners thanks for listening to the Make Meaning podcast with Lynn Galadner you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts if you like what you've heard subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world and please leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform. You can learn more at makemeaning.org or lynngaladner.com.